Well, good evening, church, and welcome again to our Sunday night teaching time. We're in a series on the parables. This is part 12, Lessons from Heaven for Life on Earth. The title tonight is The Man God Called a Fool and Why. The Man God Called a Fool and Why. And the emphasis shifts a little bit here. It's not enough just to enter the kingdom. So many of the parables we've been studying, talking about how to get into the kingdom, how the kingdom of God works. And tonight you're going to see a shift where we're talking about how, how to live in the kingdom. What are the priorities, the values? If I'm living in God's kingdom, what shape should my life take? Luke chapter 12, we're going to read verses 13 to 21. So get a Bible and let's study together. Luke 12, 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, that is said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he, that's Jesus, he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. So that's the topic, covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them, that's his disciples, Jesus told his disciples a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose, whose will they be? And then Jesus gives the conclusion. This isn't parable. This is Jesus' conclusion. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's an interesting kind of incident. It's always uh, an ugly moment when someone shouts out something while the teacher is teaching, and that's, that's what happens here. It's just an awkward feeling arises. Jesus is, uh, if you look back to the beginning of this 12th chapter, he's speaking words of life and light on really important issues of, of the kingdom. He had been teaching the crowds about uh, the love and care of Father God, that's in chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. He's been teaching the crowd about the reality of sin and hell. Notice Jesus is the one who specifically uses that word hell. And judgment, he's been doing that in chapter 12, verses 2 through 5. He's been teaching them all about the danger of shunning and rejecting the, the inward convicting work of the Holy Spirit. That's in chapter 12, verses 8, 9, and 10. I mean, these are big subjects that Jesus is dealing with. And then while he's teaching without any warning, this guy shouts out, 12, 13, 
Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So obviously, from his request, you can tell people were already putting a great deal of weight behind the words of Jesus. He's being treated like a rabbi with authority because this guy's asking Jesus to arbitrate, solve this family squabble. Jesus, you tell my brother to share the inheritance. And the implication is if Jesus says so, well, people will listen. There's no indication, just to be clear, there's no indication from the passage that this man wasn't entitled to his share of the inheritance. It's not that his request was unethical. There's nothing to hint that this man was being dishonest or wanting anything illegal. He was a brother. He was part of the family. Now, if this man were after money that wasn't rightfully his, Jesus probably would have solved the dilemma instantly by simply saying, thou shalt not steal. And that would have solved the matter. But here, in Jesus' response, there's a less obvious sin that Jesus is exposing. The the warning from Jesus isn't beware of injustice or beware of stealing. No, it's verse 13, beware of covetousness. So this parable, this story Jesus then launches into, it's directed not toward theft, but toward this inward, invisible motive, this sin of covetousness. The warning is not about obtaining wealth by unjust means. That's not what Jesus is doing. The warning is setting your heart on wealth, however rightly you may have earned it. The love of that wealth is dangerous even if you've earned it justly and properly and within your rights. That doesn't free you from this sin of covetousness. More than this man needs his share of the inheritance, he needs this lesson on greed. That's what Jesus diagnoses here. So this lesson from Jesus will do him more good than his share of the inheritance, though this man isn't ready to see that yet. That, that, that not wanting something is just as good as possessing it. I have four lessons that we want to work through tonight from the story that Jesus tells. Let's launch into it. Point number one. As Jesus tells the story, God was the one who had prospered this diligent landowner. It's in verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land, underline, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now, there's not a word from Jesus in this parable to indicate, you know, some kind of lack of diligence on this landowner's part. He probably got up early, he stayed up late, he worked his field. And yet, and yet, for all of that, Jesus is very careful to point out that in a sense, the land produced the crop, not the land owner. I mean, true, he planted, he tended, he harvested, but he he sure didn't make the rain fall, he didn't make the sun shine. 
He didn't put fertility in the soil. He didn't make the seed crack open and sprout and multiply. He probably couldn't even explain that process. The land of a rich man produced plenty. And, and, and the point Jesus is making, it has to do, it has to do with the mindset. Here's where greed comes from. Here's where covetousness comes from. If you view your wealth as a result of nothing but your talent, your efforts, your will, if that's how you view your wealth, then without a doubt, you will think of yourself as an owner rather than a steward. You know, you are not your own. Well, Pastor Don, I'm not a farmer. I don't rely on the ground to produce my wealth. I mean, I really do produce my own goods in my machine shop, in my financial institution, in my sales contacts. Like, I do that. Really? And, and, and who gives you the ability to walk around without an oxygen tank? Who gives you the mind to calculate numbers and make recommendations and decisions? Who enables you to speak or breathe for that matter or move? And, and who, who put you in prosperous Canada instead of Haiti? I mean, every one of us earns his wealth with borrowed abilities. We all do. This is what King David said. Remember King David, he prays at the dedication of the temple. It's a very high, prestigious affair. The people had responded so generously when there was a cry for funds. A huge offering was received. But notice David's words as he dedicates the temple. You can look them up. It's in 1 Chronicles 29, 11 to 16. You've heard some of these read before. Look what David says at the dedication of the temple. First Chronicles 29, starting at verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Both, look at verse 12, both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. 13. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. 14. But who am I? What is my people? that we should be able thus to offer willingly, for all things come from you. And of your own we have given you, for we are strangers before you, and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow. There's no abiding in our parable. This Tonight your soul is going to be required of you. Our days on earth are like a shadow. There is no abiding. 16, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand, and all is your own. Wow. 
when my kids were little, they used to come and ask me for $10 to buy me a Christmas present. And I would gladly give them the money, and I was pleased that they thought of it and they had this desire to give me something, but only a fool would think I was coming out 10 bucks ahead. And I've, I've since tried hard. It's a process. I've tried hard to learn to look at all of my gifts, all of my offerings to the Lord in the same way. Everything comes from his hand. And Jesus calls this rich landowner a fool because he forgot this simple truth. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, James says. Point number two. God called this man a fool because he became selfish in his heart. You look at all the personal pronouns in this conversation with himself. It's in 17, 18, and 19 of Luke 12. And he thought to himself, so he didn't say this out loud. This is the motive. This is how he's processing this. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I have too much stuff. And he said, here's all he can think of. I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. There I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, like he had control over this, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. Now remember, while the crowd is listening, Jesus is really teaching his disciples in this parable. You can see that in chapter 12, verse 1. He's talking to his disciples. As you grow in Jesus, he begins to challenge and reshape some of the more deeply entrenched fundamental attitudes of our hearts. So growing in discipleship means from moving on from basic areas of cleansing, like lying, stealing, cursing, adultery. It moves, it moves deeper after a while to changing the way I think about life, the way I think about my time, and, and especially the way I think about my possessions. Jesus will start to refine that and challenge that. So, that's what's wrong with the wealthy landowner in Jesus' parable. He hadn't robbed anyone, okay? He's not immoral. He wasn't dishonest. He worked hard. And, and, and for a lot of people, even in the church today, that's as far as they ever launch into the kingdom. Not doing anything bad. But while this man wasn't dishonest, indeed, in any way, he was incredibly sinful in his heart. He was sinful in the way he viewed what God had given into his stewardship. It's interesting, isn't it? God calls this man a fool. The Bible uses that term very carefully and specifically. We kind of use the term rather cruelly just to describe anyone we don't think is very bright. 
It's not the way the Bible uses the term. The Bible always uses the term in reference, not, not to a person's intelligence, but to his or her relationship with God and how they're applying it. So Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But, but in this parable, we learn the fool doesn't have to actually say there's no God. A fool can just act as if there is no God. That's why God calls this rich landowner a fool. Now, to his credit, I guess, he does stop, at least for a minute, and he thinks about his goods, his income, his wealth. He stops to consider what the next step should be. He's got a lot. What's he going, what's the next step with this prosperity that God has brought into his life? He thought to himself, verse 17. Now that's a good step. But for all that, he's a fool because as he thinks to himself, he doesn't relate any of it to God. God isn't mentioned in his plans. He has no sense of receiving this from God. So he has no sense of responsibility before God. He's a fool because even if he's ethical, hardworking, diligent, even if he reads the scriptures once in a while, however often he drives his children to youth night and Sunday school, however often he prays and worships and sings the songs with the congregation, however much he does all of that, he lives as if there is no God when it comes to his wealth. That's the touch point. All he can think of. Here's his best plan. He thinks it through. Here's the best thing he can come up with. I need a bigger barn. I need another cottage. I need to get a newer car. I need to get a bigger house. I need to take more trips. I need a bigger barn. Do do you see the point here? He can't. Why does he need a bigger barn? I'll tell you why. He can't use all that he's been given. He, he can't, he can't compute. A person only needs so much. And with a multiplying, dying, lost world all around him, with a savior who died for him as we look back on these events, he, he, he says, you know, the very best use of my wealth that I can come up with, my genius plan, the best thing I can think of is I need a bigger barn. It's all laid up for his future pleasure. That's it. That's all I can come up with for my wealth, my future pleasure. I think there is a sense in which nothing measures the stature of a Christian like the use of money. It might be the deepest test of my discipleship. And here's why. Here's why. That's because nothing allows us to pursue our own interest and desires like wealth. That's how it works in this world. You can do more of what you want to do if you have more money. And nothing is more detrimental to our walk with Jesus 
than just living for our own interests and desires. That's the problem. It's the danger of covetousness. It's it's something that the North American church really has to sort through. We all need to come to this conclusion. A $300,000 a year income doesn't have to generate a $300,000 a year lifestyle. And it probably shouldn't if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and he's Lord of all. Point number three. This man is a fool because he thinks he can put time in his barn along with his grain. There's a fool. It's in verses 19 and 20. And I will say to my soul, here's his plan, this genius. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And then God says to him, fool. This night, your soul is required of you. What do you think you need these bigger barns for? Tonight. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Look carefully, look carefully at that telling phrase in verse 19. You have ample goods for many years. Many goods for many years. So he he actually thinks he can bank his future years along with his goods. Or he thinks maybe that his many, many goods guarantee him many, many years. I mean, that's exactly what can happen. It's exactly that what can happen with the accumulation of wealth. You, you, you can start to tie together what you have with what life is all about. You, you can start to think that life is obtained or at least maintained by the accumulation of things. And that's what Jesus is warning against. That's what he's warning his disciples against. At the very beginning of this parable, 1215, and he said to them, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So this man's goods. They've, they've eaten the heart out of his understanding of God. They've eaten the heart out of his understanding of life in this world. Look at 1220. But God said to him, you fool. You don't see that very often in the New Testament. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? It's another translation. We're, we're, we're meant to see the contrast In verses 19 and 20, this man says, I have many years. God says, you're checking out tonight. Many years tonight. There's a world of difference between those two. The lesson, of course, is none of us is immortal. And that truth has to be more than just a theological understanding. I mean, we all know at a certain level we don't live forever. My temporary existence on earth and my accountability for the use of my wealth, that has to shape my life. That's what Jesus is saying. 
I haven't handled my wealth properly until I can leave it all tonight, stand before my creator, and know that not one penny spent looked purely selfish in the eyes of my Lord. I know none of us is there yet. I'm not there yet. And I know all of us are better at policing what other people do with their wealth than what we do with our own wealth. I get it. But still, you can't get away from this. Jesus calls his disciples as he tells this story. He says, you need to think about this a lot more than you think about it. I do too. Point number four, last point. I want to talk to you just as we wrap up how giving keeps the heart truly rich. Luke 12, 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the only place in the Bible where those words, rich toward God, are used. Right here. And those words in that last verse, they aren't part of the parable. This is Jesus making a direct statement to his disciples as he wraps up the parable. So, so the hard message of these words from Jesus is clear. You, you, can't, you can't store up wealth for yourself and be rich in the life of God at the same time. Can't do it. You can earn a great deal of wealth, of course, but you can't just store it up for your own pleasure and be rich toward God. You can't do it. If the great danger in this parable is hoarding up wealth, then to me, it's obvious the great solution to this problem is to become a generous giver of what God gives you. For, for me, for a lot of people, it starts with the tithe, the tenth of all my wealth belonging to Father God. I don't tithe because somebody can marshal a bunch of texts and sort of prove to me from the Old Testament that I should tithe. I'm tired of those silly arguments. It's not where my heart is, and that's not why I tithe. I tithe because I know my own heart. And I know that my standard of living will always rise to whatever income God blesses me with. That's called a covetous heart. So the tithe helps me hold my greed in check. That's why I tithe. Less than a tenth won't do it. But beyond my tithe, I need to come to terms with a far more basic and mature issue of discipleship. Every Christian needs to sit down somewhere and say, how much is enough? How much do I need? And at what point am I just wasting what ought to be used in God's kingdom? Now, I can't deal with that issue for you. I have a hard enough time dealing with that issue for me. But I know that less than a tithe won't deal with my my greed and my covetousness. The key verse is that 15th verse. And he said to them, 
take care and be on guard against all covetousness. One's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Did did you notice? Take care and be on guard. You You have to take care about this and you have to be on guard about this. I mean, why does Jesus say it twice? Once just isn't enough. It's just not enough. The climate of this age, the persistence of the advertisers, the fallenness of my own heart. This issue, Jesus says, takes constant warfare if you want to be rich toward God. Here's how giving fights covetousness. This is under the last point. I'm going to do A, B, C, D, E, but they're going to fly by real fast. Here's how giving fights covetousness. A. Giving expresses gratitude to God. It recognizes God as the source. That's where this guy blew it. B, giving makes my life a blessing to others. It extends what God has given me into the lives of other people. It multiplies the blessing of God. C, giving keeps my greed in check. But here's the thing. Only sacrificial giving can do this. If I only give what I can easily afford, the benefit of this is missed. If I can give and still do everything I want to do, then I haven't given enough because my heart will still be covetousness. It has to be a sacrificial enough gift that I have to do without something. So it has to be costly. That's why I said less than a tithe. It's not a legalistic principle. It's just that less than a tenth doesn't deal with my own covetousness because I can still do almost everything I want to do. D, giving can actually redeem the lost as I invested in spreading the gospel of Christ. This is the most meaningful use of wealth. It's the one way that the fruit of my wealth can pass from the temporal into the eternal. E, last point, giving shows I value God and his kingdom more than the material things of this world. Everybody says that. Not everybody gives like that. If, if, let me put it this way. If you took your receipt from the church multiplied it by 10. Could you maintain your present lifestyle? It's, it's quite a thing. It's quite a thing. I hope no one under, misunderstands this message. I have nothing whatsoever against Christians making money. Christians should make lots of money, all they can make. And when you do, use it to make your soul rich toward God. I don't want to stand before the Lord one day and have him say, you fool, what were you thinking? Bigger barns? That's all you could come up with? It's a great parable for every serious disciple to search his or her heart. Let's pray. It's humbling for us to know, Jesus, that you talked about money more than any other single subject in the New Testament. And you saw it as one of the great threats. And we live in one of the richest parts of the world. 
and we profess to follow you. And we don't want to try and split our hearts up serving two masters. And so help me, help each of us, Lord, as we look into our hearts to be rich toward God. Because that's where the joy is. And that's where your kingdom gets expanded. And that's what brings the smile to our Lord's face. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Bless you, church. Hope you're all doing well. Wednesday night, don't forget, 7 o'clock right here for 45 minutes of study as we finish off the book of Judges right in person. There's kids' ministries. It's a great refresher in the middle of the week. Love one another.